Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Justin Cole, and I'd like to welcome you to Disrupt, a podcast from Cedarville University's Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we are talking with Cedarville alumnus, Dr. Riley Huber, who will be talking with us about the topic of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Huber. Thank you, Dr. Cole, for inviting me to come on to the podcast today. I'm excited to talk with you about the state of the art on life-saving technology. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, some pharmacists and clinicians uh, see pharmacogenomics as this, quote, black box, so to speak, that is incredibly complex and difficult to apply to real-world patients. Uh, today, I want to disprove some of these beliefs and talk about how straightforward it is to apply this genetic data to patients we see every day. That's great. We are so uh, looking forward to the conversation we have today. So I, I want to start by asking you a little bit about your own background. So, Dr. Huber, tell us a bit about yourself and, and some of the training you have in this Certainly. Area. I'd be happy to, Dr. Cole. So I guess my journey in pharmacogenomics really began at Cedarville, um, where I took a pharmacogenomics course my P1 year of pharmacy school with Dr. Rocco Rotello as part of the core curriculum there at Cedarville. I remember sitting in class and being amazed with the potential of this new field. And it was, it really created an interest in me that led to my career in pharmacogenomics all the way back to my P1 year. Uh, I guess later in my time at, uh, at Cedarville, uh, specifically the summer in between my P2 and P3 years, I was offered a summer internship position, uh, at FDA to research pharmacogenomics. So, I was interested at the time, so obviously I accepted that position with them uh, to study with them uh, during that summer. Uh, the work that I conducted while uh, working with them is now published, actually, uh, but briefly we evaluated the content of pharmacogenomics information in FDA labeling. Uh, with over 250 labeling documents that have pharmacogenomics information, it is important to understand what the labeling is saying about these interactions whether a potential interaction was researched, if there's a contraindication uh, based on the drug-gene interaction, or if the interaction is merely mentioned, uh, but a change to either therapy uh, to therapy is not necessary. Um, this is a fantastic group to work with, and I really admire how they're advancing the health of Americans. And uh, prior to my graduation from Cedarville in 2018, I accepted a two-year clinical pharmacogenomics fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy and UPMC. It's kind of a dual role where I would actually uh, research implementation and translational, uh, um, I guess, sciences in the clinic and laboratory, as well as there was a longitudinal component at UPMC uh, where I staffed a CYP2C19 genotyping service for patients who underwent PCI. So we were looking specifically at clopidogrel and whether we could give it or not for those patients who were CYP2C19 intermediate and poor metabolizers. In other words, they weren't um, effectively, um, I guess, activating the drug in their body appropriately. I finished the fellowship recently, and I'm happy to have had this experience, but sad to be leaving, unfortunately. There are wonderful people at this institution, and I can't say enough good about them and their pharmacogenomics program. Currently, however... I am the Pharmacogenomics Program Director at Geisinger Health System, and I'm a faculty member within the system's research arm. 
Geisinger is, of course, well-known and recognized for genetics research and implementation. In fact, all the way back at FDA, I can remember reading about them and being fascinated with their genetics program when I was conducting literature reviews at the FDA as a student. It's kind of, if I'm being quite honest, it's kind of surreal to be leading one of their genetics programs now. The way it's kind of come full circle from being a student reading about them to now joining them. Needless to say, I'm fortunate and thrilled to be joining them in this capacity. Uh, I guess that's a brief overview of me and my career. Uh, I guess anecdotally, I've loved using my PharmD training to bring the bench closer to the bedside by researching and implementing gen- pharmacogenomics throughout the years. That's great. It's great to hear your story and how um, you've had multiple experiences that have led you to your current position, and we're confident you'll do a great job in that. So let's uh, take a moment to help our listeners understand what exactly is pharmacogenetics? So uh, this is a really good question, and it's, it's great to start with the basics. Obviously, we'll have a lot of listeners that have background in pharmacogenetics, maybe, and maybe have never heard of it. So this is a really great place to start. Thanks for asking that. Uh, let's, let's start with something we've all seen at one time or another, drug commercials. So, you know, the commercial opens with a patient who is uncomfortable in some way, but magically becomes better after taking the medication that is being advertised. Towards the end of the commercial, the side effects are read at lightning speed while the patient we've been following is frolicking through a field of flowers to distract us from the lengthy and sometimes horrifying side effects at times. <laughs> what we've been discovering over the years, however, is that a person's unique genetic profile can influence some of these side effects and how well the drug works for them, otherwise known as the safety and efficacy of the drug. Of course, genetics isn't the only thing that can impact medication safety and efficacy. Other factors such as the patient's environment, the patient's date, diet, or patient, other patient-specific demographics can also influence the drug safety and efficacy beyond just a patient's genetics. Uh, genetics is just one piece of the puzzle looking at the entirety of the patient picture. And I think I'll, I'll dive a little bit more into that a little bit later, but genetics is one component, never, never the entire picture. I guess put another way, pharmacogenetics is the study of how a patient's unique DNA code and the genes that this DNA codes for can influence the medications we give patients. Some of these genes code for proteins that met- metabolize the medications, transport medications across different tissues, or are the protein that the drug targets, the drug target. Many lish- listeners have likely heard the terms pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics before, uh, but are wondering at this point, you know, what the, what the difference is between the two. And I can tell you that really there is no difference between the two. Um, but if you're a listener and you've been wondering since the beginning of my answer to this very lengthy, uh, this very lengthy answer to this question, I probably could have skipped that first part, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, so there are actually, like I said, little to no difference between the terms. Um, they're often used synonymously within the community. Uh, put more specifically, however, pharmacogenetics is a study of how one gene can influence the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of one drug, while the pharmacogenomics is a study of how the entirety of a patient's genome or multiple genes can influence the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of a drug, uh, the safety and efficacy profiles of these drugs put a different way. Again, most of our listeners probably know a good part of this already, so thank you for uh, sticking with me throughout that lengthy answer. <laughs> yeah, it's great to um, to have you explain to us the whole idea that 
the genetic material that is the building block of, of who we are and how our bodies function affects not only what the drug does to our bodies, but also what our body does mm-hmm. to the drug. That's the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that you're talking That's about. Right. And I think recognizing that is, is critically important to understanding how we can use these technologies to better care for the yeah. patients. Just as that DNA is the building block to, uh, to how we are as a person, um, I guess pharmacogenetics is the, I guess, the building block or that, that concept that you just stated is the building block to pharmacogenetics and how we can actually take a science that's very translational in nature and, again, like I've been saying, move it very close to the bedside in the clinic. That's great. So let's let's move that way. So can you give us a practical example, a bedside application, to use your language, of how pharmacogenetic information is being used to directly improve patient care? You've already mentioned clopidogrel and your involvement in a clinic there. What's another example of how this can be used to improve the care our patients are? So that's, that's a really good question, once again. Um, clopidogrel, uh, 2C19 is uh, a good example. Another one that I like to use is SSRIs or antidepressant medications. Um, oftentimes these medications are metabolized by the drug, the, the genes CYP2D6 and CYP2C19. Uh, CYP2D6 is a gene that I'm passionate about. I did a little bit of research with them at FDA about that drug gene at FDA, but, um, so, Oftentimes, when we give a patient an SSRI, it's, it's anyone's guess which, which drug is going to work, uh, which class of drugs are going to work for that patient, so and what the side effects could be for that patient. So we can actually give them a drug and dose that's very personalized for them based on their CYP2D6 and CYP2C19 genetic testing. Um, of course, I should mention genetics aren't the only picture of that puzzle again. Um, if a patient has had a, a genetic test previously and they don't, um, I guess, they, they've had an SSRI for years and years and years, please don't change the dose if they're stable. Obviously, uh, their, their body has um, some sort of uniquely, uh, I guess, become accustomed to that drug and that dose. So if they're stable on a uh, specific drug and don't have any side effects or concerns, please don't change them based on their genetic profile um, only. Of course, there's there's also the inpatient realm. Um, that was mostly the outpatient uh, uh, psychiatry. There's the inpatient, uh, whether we're um, selecting an initial dose for warfarin. So we can grab, uh, I guess, a genetic test for CYP2C9 and VCORE C1 to actually give a very precise first dose. And again, once we know that patient's phenotype, which we know their INR and it's very stable, we don't want to um, use the, their genetic component to dose uh, uh, the, the, what they're getting. So um, oftentimes with an initial dose for a lot of these drugs, um, uh, pharmacogenomics can be helpful. But again, once they're stable, please do not change them. <laughs> Well, I, I think your answer highlights a couple really important factors related to the use of this information in clinical care. Um, the first hits close to my own practice as a pediatric behavioral health pharmacist. When we think about SSRIs, which are a specific type of antidepressants, 
there are things we can learn from an individual patient's genetic makeup that can inform better decisions on which of those antidepressants to use at the very beginning of therapy. Mm -hmm. So rather than trial and error, we might be able to find the right drug and the right dose much more quickly and therefore um, treat them more effectively. I think another thing you highlight very rightly is the fact that pharmacogenomics is not the only factor in deciding what should be done for an individual patient. Um, and so I love the, the fact that you highlight if you have a person who is stable, they are experiencing good effects and they are not having any side effects, pharmacogenomic information when it comes back does not necessarily um, drive you to change the dose in someone who is already stable. Correct. Right? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think you bring out some really important points that I think are key to knowing how to use this important information in the context of clinical Something care. else I'll mention about SSRIs in particular, uh, there has been some research on the drug target itself and not the metabolizing enzymes. Unfortunately, the guidelines don't necessarily state that we should change uh, based on the drug targets themselves. There is some literature that has evaluated it, but again, with something that's very translational in nature, we're still working at the bench, it's very hard to bring some of these other things that we have primary literature for into the, the bedside, unfortunately. So we're, we're looking more towards the drug targets as well. Yeah, that's great. So a- another question that I commonly get as a pharmacist is, Related to direct-to-consumer genomic testing. So as you're aware, there are quite a few of these products that are available on the market where a person can go on a website and pay for a testing kit to be sent to their home, usually do a saliva sample, they send it, and then they get genetic information back for themselves. So an example of this might be 23andMe. So here's the question I have for you, Dr. Uber. How do these direct-to-consumer tests differ from the clinical pharmacogenetic testing that you're talking to us yeah, about? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, currently, uh, for, our, for our genetic testing, such as 23andMe, um, we currently do not have, they currently do not report uh, pharmacogenetic results. Mostly, uh, they focus on the, uh, the health and ancestry portion of a patient's genetics. Um, years ago, when 23andMe did first open for business, they previously did report a pharmacogenomics results, uh, but unfortunately, the FDA pressured them to stop reporting these results, and they complied with that. Um, yeah. So again, the current results mostly just focus on ancestry and d- disease risk, um, so to speak. Uh, although 23andMe reports don't specifically report pharmacogenomic results, uh, they have received FDA pro- approval to do so, believe it or not. Um, this will be the only FDA-approved way for patients to get tested with an over-the-counter pharmacogenomics test. Uh, we really don't know exactly what that test or the report itself will look like. Um, I don't think I have to mention it, but there is great potential for this to be massively successful and generate a lot of interest among patients. Uh, that being said, uh, with an increased patient interest that I just described, Dr. Cole, which healthcare provider would you guess patients are likely to go to to ask about a new uh, pharmacogenetics 23andMe test? Well, you ask an excellent question. I think the obvious answer is the pharmacist um, from a number of, of fronts. I think the first would be 
pharmacists have the training to help mm-hmm. them navigate the vast amount of information that they have to think through. Um, and then I think secondly, accessibility. Um, most of our communities have a community pharmacy or pharmacist embedded in other practices that allow them to be sought out by patients. So um, I know you've kind of planted me with this question, and I think it's, but I think it's a good one. And I think uh, with uh, the way that our pharmacists are trained today, they are primed and ready to help patients with this. Exactly. You're, you're taking, you've, you answered that perfectly. So yeah, lit- primary literature does say that pharmacists are most accessible. Um, some patients might bring it to their next appointment with the doctor, and I really think that they should um, if they feel so inclined to do so. But many are still likely to bring their results to the pharmacist. Again, with that being said, how should a pharmacist counsel these patients to bring the test results into the pharmacy? Uh, specifically for the 23andMe tests, uh, you should not change or attempt to change the patient's medications based on this test alone. The FDA approval requires that a second pharmacogenomics test be conducted to validate these results from 23andMe. Uh, they, the, the, the test itself is accurate, but there's also a chain of custody. The patients will mail it to 23andMe. So there isn't the chain of custody that, custody that we have in a fully, um, I guess, um, a fully accredited CLIA CAP laboratory that we would send uh, actual clinical samples to. As far as which medications should be changed, I really recommend looking at the CPIC guidelines. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit more later, specifics about CPIC. Um, uh, but for now, the best resources for making these changes are the CPIC guidelines. Uh, last, patients receiving any type of pharmacogenomics test should be counseled to never, ever change their medications or the way that they're taking their medications on their own. Instead, they should talk to their doctor or pharmacist about potential changes. Um, I guess I did say last to that, but one other th- point that I would like to make is that uh, j- so a pharmacogenomics tests will have two deliverables. The first will be a patient's genotype. Oftentimes, they will be they will consist of stars and letters and numbers sometimes. It's really confusing even for me at times to determine exactly what that genotype is doing. I would highly suggest that pharmacists and other clinicians do like just ignore the genotype. It's going to be confusing. It's confusing for me as well at times. What you want to look at is the phenotype. So it'll come in the form of poor metabolizer, normal metabolizer. There will be an actionable phenotype that you can actually look at and look at the CPIC guidelines and it'll the CPIC guidelines will have the, the actual phenotype and you can match up and see exactly what to do. So again, ignore the genotype itself. It's mostly for researchers and nerds like me, but we want to mostly look at uh, the phenotype when lo- looking to change a patient's medication. That's great information. So another question that I often get asked is, this testing is perceived as being somewhat costly. So how do you see the market changing so that this technology becomes a part of everyday care? So this is, that's a very good question. Um, I guess as the, uh, the, the cost of medications are skyrocketing and the cost of genetic testing is actually decreasing, uh, what we're finding uh, very quickly that it's becoming very cost effective to do this genetic testing. I won't, I won't produce a uh, specific number or I guess uh, numbers for the, how much that testing costs, but it's, it's widely available. Um, 
the, the actual testing costs themselves are very widely available. Um, but it, it, we, because of this decreased testing in the last couple of years, we have seen it, um, uh, increase in utilization throughout a lot of different clinics. Yeah, and I'll add that I know that many insurance companies either are or are consider considering paying for these services as well. So it's not something that patients necessarily pay for out of pocket. Correct. It's becoming more the norm for a lot of insurance companies to cover it. But um, I would, if I was a pharmacist in a clinic or a pharmacy, I would definitely check with the insurance company first prior to sending out something off to the lab, and even like. At the, at the very least, make sure that the patient is fine with paying for it themselves. If there's some sort of issue with the, with the actual, uh, insurance reimbursement. So pivoting a bit based on current events in our world. So is there any practical way that pharmacogenomics could help us in treatment or prevention of COVID-19? Yeah. So this is very applicable today. Um, unfortunately, that answer is, Kind of know, and let me explain. Uh, so the current treatment options for COVID-19, remdesivir and dexamethasone, don't have evidence-based pharmacogenomics implications. Uh, we can look them up, however, on a lot of different databases, and we might find them on databases, but there aren't evidence-based changes that we can make uh, based on the patient's genetics. However, there is also the po- always the possibility that patients given other medications in the inpatient setting could benefit from pharmacogenomics testing. Um, I should also mention that a COVID-19 patient, um, if a COVID-19 patient has not had preemptive testing or preemptive testing is the testing that was previously done in advance prior to the patient being um, taken inpatient, it may be difficult to get results back quickly. If you're sending a sample out to an outside laboratory for pharmacogenomics results, it often take a week or even more to return those results. It might not be feasible logically, um, to test uh, in this setting, considering the amount of time it would take to return this type of test. And of course, with the caveat that preemptive testing, if they have that, then of course we could use that. Um, I should also mention the possibility that patients may receive non-approved treatments as a part of clinical research studies. So one, one in particular is patients with G6PD deficiency are at an increased risk of developing hemolytic anemia uh, when taking Plaquenil and others in this class. Of course, this drug has been extensively studied. I don't know what at, to what extent patients are still getting this, but if they're a part of a research study, uh, G6PD G6 deficiency can be tested with enzyme testing, looking directly at the enzyme and not the genetic test itself. Or, of course, it can be genetically tested to see if there's a deficiency. Um, often we, we want to look very closely at our patients of African or Mediterranean descent um, as they have a higher risk of having this G6PD deficiency. Um, so there might be a reason to test in uh, some of these patients, particularly if there is a family his- history of this deficiency. Of course, I should mention with any new and emerging disease, we're of course still figuring out the best way to treat these patients uh, the lack of pharmacogenomics utilization in current COVID-19 treatment uh, could change in the near future. And I, I see that as a very real possibility. That's great. So I want to build off of something that you talked about, and that is reactive versus preemptive testing. So what is your opinion? <laughs> Which is better, reactive or preemptive testing of our pharmacogenomic data for a patient? So I, 
as as a researcher and a clinician, I like my preemptive testing. The test is already there in the electronic medical record. Um, hopefully, it's not a paper test, and hopefully, it's entered into the medical record as what's known as discrete fields or a uh, uh, an actual laboratory test that you can click on and look at everything about that test specifically, and not like a paper or something that's just uh, scanned into the electronic medical record. But there, there of course is we can we can build a case for reactive testing or testing that is done in a more emergent setting. So of course, with my previous experience with CYP2C19 patients uh, receiving PCI, um, those patients oftentimes are taken to the cath lab emergently with for, with a heart attack or some sort of acute coronary syndrome. So of course, a lot of these patients haven't previously been tested for this gene. So we want, we want to get, make a way to be able to, uh, test this gene emergently in the emergent sense, sense. And, uh, uh, there, there is a case to be built for emergently testing some patients because uh, currently, of course, we, not every patient's going to be preemptively test, tested. That's, in, a, in an ideal, in my ideal world, everyone would be preemptively tested. But of course, there's not enough money to do that. The resources would be insane. So um, if there is a patient who has a lot of comorbidities, there could be a reason to do some sort of preemptive testing. If a patient is going to receive a, a drug, is scheduled to receive a drug at a later time, say the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months, and you want to specifically dose for that patient, a preemptive test might be an avenue to go, go about, especially if that therapy is quite expensive. Uh, a test itself could be cost effective. Well, that's good information. Thanks for sharing uh, sharing your thoughts on that. So uh, another related question that I have is, in what areas does pharmacogenomics show the most promise? You've given us examples um, related to the treatment of depression, anticoagulation. Are there particular areas where you think the future of pharmacogenomics is most bright? Um, so, of course, pharmacogenomics is very broad. Um, if you Google FDA pharmacogenomics table and look at their biomarker table, you'll see like the therapeutic areas. It's just astounding like how many different therapeutic areas there are. So, like I mentioned, the treatment with antidepressant and depression patients um, you can make a case for all uh, psychiatry-related um, diseases as well. Um, a lot of the other um, uh, therapies that we use that aren't necessarily antidepressants can have pharmacogenomic implications. Um, I see that ex- uh, that area exploding. Uh, something that we didn't really touch on yet and that I want to touch on today is pain management. Pain management, of course, is a very huge area, unfortunately, um, in our current uh, healthcare landscape. So um, there were recent CPIC guidelines for NSAID dosing. So we can, if a patient is preemptively tested, we can dose specifically based on that testing. Now, of course, with the caveat that logistically it might be difficult um, if a patient is um, doesn't have a preemptive test and we want to use a test to specifically, precisely dose a patient with, with an NSAID. That might create a little bit logistic, of a logistical issue, um, especially if the patient's in acute pain. We don't want to wait, uh, withhold an NSAID if they're in acute pain, of course. 
Um, another one is tramadol. Um, that one's specifically um, listed in a new FDA table called Pharmacogenetic Associations. And you can, you can read it if you're interested, but we can dose specifically with tramadol in patients who are CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizers. And of course, the big question on everyone's mind is opioids. What about opioids? So um, that, that's, that's a growing area of evidence. Currently, we don't have guidelines specifically um, for those for dosing or dosing the dosing opioids specifically, or I guess um, risk of developing some sort of opioid use, use disorder. There really isn't fantastic evidence that we can use in the clinic currently today. So I guess I guess psychiatry broadly and as well as uh, pain management are two areas that I see really exploding in the next couple of years. Great. Yeah. To clarify, I think the NSAIDs is very interesting because in that class of drugs, we're talking about things that many of us take every single day, like ibuprofen or naproxen if we get a fever or a headache or have some type of musculoskeletal pain. Uh, If we are able to use this genetic information to better dose an over-the-counter product, Wow, the, the implications of this technology are suddenly open to really every single person that we see in a pharmacy. Yeah, with, with the caveat with NSAIDs, I think ibuprofen, the OTC dose is like the lowest recommended dose. Um, so, yeah, we, we can dose specifically, say a patient's taking a large amount, but they're not supposed to over the counter and is having a lot of side effects. Then, yeah, sure, maybe we can, if they have a laboratory result that was in a, in a CLIA cap reported in a clinical CLIA cap environment, validated environment, then yeah, we could counsel that patient. We should already be counseling that patient not to take too much over the counter, but we can counsel them and say, Oh, so your genetics are telling us that you're taking a little bit too much. Maybe we should back down on the dose and maybe give a little bit more of a, a reason why we shouldn't take as much over the counter. So the next question I have for you is you've mentioned G6PD deficiency as an area where using genomic data um, can help us better select medications that won't cause issues for a particular person. And G6PD can be more commonly seen um, in certain minorities here in the U.S. So I'm curious, uh, your thoughts on how could pharmacogenomics be used to improve the health of minorities specifically? So again, great question, especially considering how this issue has been put front and center over the past few months. Uh, With certain medications that are heavily influenced by genetic differences, diverse racial ancestry can produce diverse safety and efficacy results within these different medications. So often what we would consider a, quote, rare genetic variant uh, are found predominantly in or only in our minority populations. Uh, More often than not, these variants carry a, a higher risk for a lack of efficacy or even greater safety concerns for these patients, unfortunately. Um, a good example of this, uh, of these differences that can be seen uh, are, is in the gene is CYP3A5, acetochrome P450 enzyme, mostly found in the liver and intestines. A lot of our, pa- uh, a lot of our listeners probably haven't heard of CYP3A5, um, as it doesn't have a lot of pharmacology influences. And mainly, and many of our listeners probably haven't heard it again too often but it is active in the metabolism of a drug called Ticrolimus. 
Um, this drug was predominantly studied in our Caucasian patients, as a lot of uh, our current FDA-approved drugs have been, where the evidence for initial dosing was initially created. Uh, generally, generally, as a population whole, Caucasians have a CYP3A5 enzyme that really just doesn't work. Uh, uh, generally, in this population, it has no function at all and does not influence the metabolism of the drug. Patients who aren't Caucasian, say are patients of African ancestry, may have a higher likelihood of having a CYP3A5 enzyme that is functional to at least some capacity and will therefore metabolize the drug a little bit more quicker than our Caucasian patients. Often those with a CYP3A5 enzyme uh, that is functional to some capacity will be initiated on a higher dose than is generally recommended because of this greater metabolism. And of course, I've said this before, but if a patient's on a stable tacrolimus dose, please don't change the dose based on uh, their CYP3A5 enzyme report. Of course, uh, an actual level is a good is a better indicator of a phenotype than uh, than the actual genetic CYP3A5 testing. And of course, I should also mention that it, this is this is just population as a whole. We could also have African American patients who have no CYP3A5. Three A five function, and we could have Caucasians who have full CYP three A function. It's just as looking at the population demographics, that's what we can generally see. Uh, but given this example and others that I really haven't mentioned, um, including J six PD, uh, there is great opportunity to improve minority health through pharmacogenomics by informing the selection of the right drug and the right dose for these patients specifically. Thanks for sharing those examples. So I have one last question for you, and that is, if we have listeners who are interested in learning more about pharmacogenomics and its implications for patient care, what would be the best way to learn more about this field? So this is a question that I get a lot, a lot, a lot, (laughs) from both students and pharmacists. As this field has expanded and has become more feasible to implement in the standard of care, like I've been saying throughout, I've noticed an increased interest among pharmacy students and pharmacists in this field specifically. So, let's start with students. I highly recommend that students start looking for opportunities in pharmacogenomics as early as possible, as early as they can, their P1 year, even during their undergraduate years. Uh, this could come in the form of paid internships, rotations, research, or even just shadowing shadowing those in the field. However, given the few opportunities that are available, because, of course, pharmacogenomics is a new and emerging field, I would suggest getting a little bit creative uh, for those who can't find anything. I would suggest maybe learning new skills that could be useful in the field, uh, such as learning statistical software or research skills, uh, learning the CPIC guidelines that I've been mentioning, uh, reading pharmacogenomics publications, or reaching out to those who just work in the field. Students could also partner with faculty members to publish a paper on pharmacogenomics. Really, the list here is endless. Uh, There are plenty of ways for students to build a CV that shows demonstrated interest in the field. Most postgraduate programs, either fellowships or residencies in pharmacogenomics, look for this demonstrated interest specifically. Another thing that I would like to mention for interested students Um, They should, at the very least, be comfortable with holding a job that requires interpreting research and applying it to a real-world setting. Often, it's preferable that they are at least comfortable conducting research uh, to some capacity. With any new and cutting-edge field, uh, we're still figuring out the best ways to use this technology and exactly how patients stand to benefit in the field. 
Additionally, there isn't really a golden standard for implementing this technology into care quite yet, as I've demonstrated it several different ways. But given this, I'm of the opinion that a desire to professionally interpret and apply primary literature to real-world patients in their care is a requirement for those students who wish to get into pharmacogenomics. Students who have an interest in pharmacogenomics should last uh, begin considering postgraduate pharmacogenomics training programs. Uh, there are both residencies and fellowships available, like I just said, um, but as with any postgraduate training program, it's important for candidates to do their background research on the institution, uh, focusing, of course, on the pharmacogenomics program that's within the institution and ensuring the program itself meets the candidate standards and the, those standards in the field. Now, that's a brief overview of how students should go about it. Well, what if you're a listener and you're a pharmacist? Well, if you're a pharmacist or interested in this type of pharmacogenomic service, either changing into this specialty or you're just interested, um, consider partnering with partnering. If, and if you're interested in creating a specific pharmacogenomic service, uh, consider partnering with other clinicians and uh, leadership at your institution. Uh, please be aware that starting this type of service is extremely time-consuming and technical and requires specific resources that, unfortunately, may not be available at your practice site. Uh, a lot of the service will likely need to be outsourced as well, either to a laboratory or um, uh, other means. Uh, building this type of service definitely is possible with a lot of time and energy and research, but it's a little more complicated than starting other, or other pharmacy services, such as warfarin monitoring or vancomycin dosing services. Uh, really, the, the thing that makes it a lot more complicated is the genetics component, unfortunately. It has a whole new level of complexity that isn't often present uh, when we think of traditional pharmacy-led services, unfortunately. Like I was mentioning earlier, the genotype to phenotype conversion and actually knowing what the, the phenotype is for a given genotype and being able to interpret that phenotype into actual real-world results, that, that, that is a whole complex issue. And as well as implementing it into the electronic medical record, it's, there's, there's a lot of layers there. Uh, but let's just say you're a listener and just want to learn more about pharmacogenomics and aren't sure where to start. Well, I hope that you've come to the right place, and I think that you have. Um, but like I mentioned, the CPIC guidelines are a great way to start. Um, knowing which drugs could be changed and which genes have evidence for testing will, of course, be helpful. Um, you can look at the CPIC guidelines by going to cpicpgx.org, um, and you'll be greeted by the website. At the very top, you'll see the tabs for navigating the website. Uh, you're just going to click on the guidelines, and currently they're about uh, – I believe, 24 guidelines at the time of this recording. Of course, they update guidelines um, every so often, and new guidelines are being added uh, quite often, actually. So that's, that's a resource that can be utilized, and I mentioned the FDA uh, pharmacogenetics tables that can also be utilized. Um, but um, there's also, if you're interested in getting a certificate in this field, uh, there are pharmacogenomic certificates available through many of our national pharmacy organizations. And I would recommend that if you're, again, interested uh, to seek those out. Great. Well, Dr. Huber, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us, and um, we appreciate your expertise. Thank you, Dr. Cole, again, for inviting me. I, I always love talking about pharmacogenomics, and, of course, I'm a, I'm a specialist in the field, so it's a, it's a passion area for me, of course. <laughs> 
You've been listening to Disrupt, a podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you've enjoyed listening today, please subscribe and share this podcast via social media or for others to find too. For more information on the center and for the Cedarville University School of Pharmacy, visit cedarville.edu forward slash pharmacy. Be sure to tune in next time for more advancements in the world of pharmacy. Thanks for listening.